Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. As we continue our study of the men and women of the book of Judges, let's um, just kind of do a little review. Uh, The very first week we looked at a guy by the name of Othniel. Othniel was a willing and capable servant of God. Then we looked at Ehud. Ehud was a smart dude. He figured out how to do it without uh, creating a lot of problems. And he um, had a good plan. And he, and he fulfilled the plan. And we talked about Shamgar. Shamgar was a farmer who used what he had to do what he needed uh, to fight the battle. And we talked about Deborah and Barak, and together they made a great team. Uh, Barak, or excuse me, Deborah was the judge. Barak was the reluctant leader who led the way into the battle. The last two weeks we looked at Gideon. Gideon was fearful, but yet faithful. We talked about how God used him in a great way. Before we look at a new one today, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we are thankful that we can come into your house. You are so good to us. You provide for us. You bless us. You give us health and strength. Lord, I pray that as we look into this passage, Lord, this morning, we will understand that we're not careful, we can allow our pride, our sin to creep in and um, impact our relationship with you and impact um, what you want us to do. Lord, we know that even through that, your will will be done. Lord, I pray you'll help us to see it. Give me strength as I speak. We ask this in your name. Amen. We studied the life of Gideon the last two weeks and we saw how God worked through his life. Gideon was, in the beginning, as I said, he was a fearful, uh, backwards, unwilling participant. But God got a hold of his heart. Once Gideon decided to trust in God, he became an amazing soldier for God, and he did amazing things for God. As we wrap up Gideon's life, look, if you will, at Judges chapter 8 is where I'm going to start. And let's look at chapter 8 and see... What takes place after Gideon died? If you look at chapter 8, verse uh, 28, it tells us there that they were subdued. The land had rest for 40 years. Then we come to verse 29, and it says, Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon, remember Jerubal is Gideon, they're one and the same. Now Gideon had 70 sons with his offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah, at Bezrite. As soon as Gideon died, and commentary right there, notice that. They lived at peace. They were doing what God wanted. And the second Gideon died... What do they do? tells us there, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, and notice the word, graphic in ESV, hoard after the Baals. I think that we understand there, the idea was, is probably these guys, their faith wasn't really their faith. 
their faith was Gideon's faith. Uh, and, and sometimes, and this is kind of a side message, but sometimes, you know, we have kids and teens that go through youth groups and their faith really isn't their faith. It's mom and dad's faith. And how do we know that? Because as soon as they get freedom, they turn their back on God. And we have to notice that what happens there, and it says, uh, as soon as Gideon dies, they go and they begin doing it. And he uses the phrase in the ESV, it says they hoard after the bales. Again, that's a graphic term. God uses the same idea in James when he says that uh, if you do not love me, then, then you are committing adultery against me. And he says uh, in this passage the same similar thing. And then it says, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. We see here they begin doing their own things. We learn from this passage, though, a few things. We learn that uh, Gideon had 70 sons. Um, and not going to get into a commentary on what Scripture says about multiple wives, but let's just put it this way, the Bible's against it. But uh, they had, he had many wives, and from that he had 40 sons. The nation of Israel was thrilled as long as Gideon was alive. Things were going well. There was 40 years of peace, and, and everything was going well. And following the death of Gideon, one of his sons begins to rise in power. Unfortunately, the one that begins to rise in power was not like his father. Gideon's son, Abimelech, was arrogant and selfish and rebellious against God. And all, unlike all the other judges that we've talked about that preceded Abimelech, uh, Abimelech was not chosen by God. He chose himself. He appointed himself to be the leader and the king. And although his story is one of rebellion, and we'll talk about that, the sadness of the rebellion and disobedience, we find that despite that, God used him. Not because of what he had done, but in spite of what he'd done, God used him. And I think today's message as we go through is a reminder that God's plans are greater than any evil plans of Satan. And even when Satan manages to get people of, uh, into positions of leadership and influence, God still has the power to accomplish his will. Sometimes I feel that there are Christians who panic when evil people rise into places of prominence, such as political positions, as if God's no longer in control. But not just, let's, maybe it hits a little closer to home. Maybe you have an ungodly uh, parent or your parents are ungodly, and you think, how can I be used by God? You can be. Or maybe you work for a tyrannical boss. I mean, your boss is just nuts. He's always telling you what to do in a mean-spirited way. He's, his expectations are way too high, and there's no way you can follow what he has for you to do. God has not forgotten you. Maybe there's someone in your life that just makes your life miserable. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it might be the person sitting next to you. But maybe there's someone in your life that makes your life miserable. Don't panic, because, it, but, because we need to need trust God, because God is still in control. And one thing we're going to learn by studying Abimelech's story is that God's will cannot be stopped. And God's plan cannot be stopped. We're going to study this guy, Abimelech. 
It's one that maybe you've heard the name before, but probably haven't studied in great de- detail. So let's, let's look a little about him. Let me give you some characteristics about Abimelech. First of all, Abimelech manipulated people. It's clear as we look at this passage that Abimelech was a bad guy. Now, bad guy, and that's the title. Uh, you know, my wife told me I was very creative to come up with that title. A bad guy, bad judge, probably was an understatement. I mean, this guy was terrible. He was rotten to the core. You ever heard that phrase before? And, and he was just a wicked dude. He was not the type of guy that if your daughter came home you know, to meet the family and you, she brought him along, you'd be like, leave. Or I will cause you to leave. Okay, That's the type of guy he was. And one of the things he did was he manipulated people. Notice, if you will, at Judges chapter 9. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. You know, back in verse 30, we see of chapter 8, we see that Gideon had 70 sons from many different wives. But he also had a son from a concubine, and his name was Abimelech. What is, what is a concubine? I'm sure that if you've been in church your whole life, you've heard that, that word concubine, and you uh, understand basically what it is. But what is a concubine? A concubine was actually a legal wife. It was a wife that they would take to themselves, but they were considered a secondary wife. Okay, so you would have these wives up here. I think I just hear a bunch of wives groaning. Okay, you have these wives up here were the predominant wives, and then concubines were the secondary wives. Most of the time, they were brought in as slaves. And they, so they were not seen as legitimate part of the family. They were seen as secondary, as not as important. They were seen as, uh, they were looked down upon. Now, having concubines was not a part of God's plan, and that's not the lesson for today. But you have to understand, Abimelech was the son of a concubine, and so in the eyes of society, Abimelech was a second-class citizen. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us if all, all the, the rest of the 69 were all from you know, the uh, higher class wives or if there were any others from the concubine line, but we do understand here that he was. And so because of that, he was already behind the eight ball, as the saying goes. He was already secondary. He was already of little importance to the other 69. Now... To make matters worse, where was his mom from? If you notice in the passage, it says there that um, his mother was from Shechem. What do we know about Shechem? Shechem was a city that was in the promised land, and it was, but it was still being occupied by the Canaanites. When God had told them to go into the promised land, he had told them, I want you to conquer these cities. And Shechem was one of them that they were supposed to conquer. Uh, but instead of conquering, instead of what they did was they went in and they made uh, treaties with them. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago, God said not to make treaties, yet they did. They went in and made treaties with this, these people in Shechem instead of driving them out. 
Now that's significant. Why? Because Shechem was a city uh, of idol worshippers. And as is often the case, the idol worshipping people in Shechem had more of an influence on the Israelites than the Israelites had on the people of um, Shechem. And it wasn't long before the Israelites were probably joining in uh, with the people of Shechem and doing the, the worship of false gods. So here we see we got this Abimelech guy. He's looked down on by the other, his other brothers. Okay? He's from an area that most Israelites look down upon because of their idol worship. And he decides, I'm going to come up with a plan. So notice, if you will, again, at that passage in Judges 9. And it says in uh, verse 2, he says he comes to his um, family. Now, this isn't all the people of Shechem. This is just his family, and he comes walking in. Maybe this is his mom's parents. Maybe it was aunts and uncles. I, I don't know who exactly it was, but he comes into the family, and he says to them a very simple question. He says, you're going to have people ruling over you, They're going to rule over you. Would you rather have 70 men rule over you that you don't really know? Now, he doesn't say that, but that's implied based on what he says later. Or would you rather have one guy rule over you that's from your family, that's your flesh and blood? And that's, you know, he's manipulating them. So what does he ask them to do? He says, I want you to go to the leaders and, and I want you to plead with them to do this. I want you to beg with them to, uh, to, to understand that and make me significant. Now, this is significant that he is wanting to be leader because his father, Gideon, made it very clear before his death that there was, he had no intention to rule and he had no intention for his sons to rule. Look, if you will, at Judges 8 and verse 23. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And so Gideon had told them, I will not do it, my sons will not do it, no one will do it, and yet he comes in and he says, no, I want to rule. And he manipulates the people of Shechem to get on his side. And through this deceptive manipulation, he begins to convince the people to side with him. And then what happens next? Well, the next point is Abimelech associated with the wrong people. You know, when we begin to associate with the wrong people, it's going to impact us. Um, You know, I, as a youth pastor for many years, I I saw that. You know, the the kids would come in, and I remember, I remember young young men would come into the youth group, young ladies as well. And they were visitors, and they would come, and, and they would be there, and they weren't the best of characters. You know, they, they struggle with some things, and you try to work with them, and you want to see them grow. And I'd watch teenagers that would gravitate towards them, and uh, good teens, teens that love the Lord. And, and inevitably what happened was is they were impacted by those teens that did not love the Lord. And it infected them. And that's... That's the case here. When we begin to surround ourselves with bad company, it's going to impact us. Now, I think Abimelech was already bad company, but he went out and didn't uh, just stop there. He went out and made bad company himself. That's why uh, it says in in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so what does Abimelech do? Look, if you will, again, 
at uh, chapter 9. Excuse me, chapter 9 and verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on, the, on, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. So they come and they say, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense that we follow someone who we know, someone who is our relative, and so we're going to do that. But no, it doesn't just stop there. In verse 4, And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith. So they give him money out of the, the false idol temple. What, what is he to do with that money? It says, um, and he's going to, with which Abimelech hired, notice what it says there, this is kind of crazy that, that God put this in Scripture, that he hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So they come and they say, okay, we're going to give you some money, and you've got to read between the lines. We're going to give you some money so that you can go and make sure that you help us rule. And, and so who does he go out and hire? He doesn't go out and hire, hey, I'm going to go get some soldiers with integrity. I'm going to go get some guys who, who are, follow the Bible. I'm going to go get some guys. I don't even think he went and got guys who were following false religion. I think he just went and got the low of lows. Like He got the wicked, nasty, ugly dudes. He got these guys, and he brought these guys in, and for what purpose? He hired these uh, merciless mercenaries, and he forged with them, and they, he made them a squad of political hitmen. Yes, he's the leader because he was gifted, but yet he um, brought them in, and, and basically he begins to lead not by his gifts, he bought his office and he led by terrorism. Notice what it says next in, in verse 5. And he went to his father's house at Orphra and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. We don't know exactly what that means, but they gathered in, and I'm sure they brought him in one at a time on, on a large stone and, and had them killed. The Bible doesn't even tell us how he did it specifically, but they, they kill these, uh, these men. Then it goes on and says this, But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself, and comes and he decides he gets away somehow, but he hides himself. As I stated earlier, Abimelech was uh, a bad, to say he was a bad example was an understatement. Uh, I doubt um, there is any of us today who here today who would be okay with taking a life. How about taking the life of another family member? But Abimelech takes it a step further and he slays sixty-nine of his brothers in cold blood, premeditated murder. He slaughters them. He wanted to be king, and he wanted to make certain that none of his brothers would threaten him. He wanted to make certain that no one else was going to come in his way. And so he manipulated, and then he surrounded himself with evil men so that they could do the job. However, as we said, Jotham got away. But before that, we see that they, they come in verse 6, and it says, The leaders of Shechem came together, and all bare Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king. Now, what's the problem with that? The Bible says there should be no king. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but he did what God didn't want them to do. We'll see over the next uh, number of verses 
Um, the next stage, or the next point about Abimelech, Abimelech sought his own revenge. Um, I am not going to read the majority of this chapter, but I, I do challenge you to go back and read it because um, there is some interesting details involved with that, but it kind of, after a while, kind of looks the same, and so I'm not going to read it right now. But if you see what happens in verses 7 through 21, Jotham comes into the picture and he stands afar off and he begins to um, argue, it makes, it makes a passionate speech to the men of Shechem. Basically, his speech is this, is why would you want someone to lead over you who just killed his 69 brothers? Makes sense, right? Why would you want someone who, is, who has done this wickedness in the land, why would you want that type of person to lead over you? Well, they had already made him king, so it was a little late, uh, but uh, uh, Jotham yells, and if you notice at the end of verse 21, then Jotham, after he does this, he runs away and stays away. Now we see over the next uh, number of verses, verse 22, if you look, it says, And Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And there is this, uh, what happens over the next period of time is a, a, a period of civil war that takes place in various stages. Uh, one person is going to rise up, and, 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 and Abimelech will knock him down, and someone else will rise up, and Abimelech will knock them down, and another person will rise up, and Abimelech will knock them, them down, because over and over again, Abimelech was doing whatever he could to get his revenge. He wanted to get his revenge because they began to turn against him, and he didn't like it. He didn't like what was taking place, and, and he didn't uh, follow the command of Scripture that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He didn't give it to God. He took over. He sought his own revenge. revenge. Fourth, we're going to look at Abimelech worried about his reputation. This is the fourth reason we want to look at why he's uh, a bad example, is that he was too much worried about his own reputation. Notice, if you will, in Judges chapter 9 and verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came in, Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Now, this is, you have to understand that this is something that's previously already happened. If you look at the previous story, a similar thing happens. Abimelech comes into a town to fight against the people there, and they go to a strong place, which would have probably been very similar, a tower. And if you look in the previous verses, what did he do? In the previous uh, town, he comes and he gathers a bunch of wood, and he brings it to the base of the tower, and he lights the thing on fire. And you look in Scripture, if, uh, if you look in verse 49, it says, So all the people in the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Didn't even bat an eye. Just kills them all. So he comes to this next one, and, and I'm sure he's thinking the same thing. If we can get him up in a tower, I'll come and I'll do the same thing I did in the last city. But what happens? Something takes place here that's interesting. It says in that, in that passage, let's look at verse 52. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. 
And a certain woman threw a upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushed and crushed his skull. Now, that sounds painful. Scripture doesn't tell us how high this tower is, but I can imagine of any height. And I don't know why they didn't think about this in the last tower, but, and I don't know why no men thought of this in this passage, but here this woman comes along and says, I got this millstone, and what am I going to do with this millstone? And she goes to the edge, and she notices Abimelech standing right there, and she thought, hmm. And she pushes it off the edge, and it lands. Now, it doesn't kill him. It's a, it's a mortal wound, but it doesn't kill him at that moment. Why do we know that? Because notice what it says next. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, listen to this. It's just more of the evil guy. Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. I mean, you're sitting there laying on the ground, and you're, I mean, his head is just gushing out and he's and he's standing there and he's got to be in tremendous pain and he's got to be i mean seconds away from death this couldn't have been oh i'm going to drag out for days it's, it was seconds away from death and he calls his servants over and says kill me because i don't want it to be said about me that a woman killed me you see here he's he's so incredibly arrogant that all he's concerned about is his reputation now just as a side note i want you to notice the next verse it kind of sums up how the people of Israel viewed Abimelech. Remember, Abimelech, their leader, their judge, their their king, self-appointed, but still nonetheless king. And it says in verse 55, And when the people of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Now think about that for a moment. Here he is dead, and they go, Hmm, all right, let's go home. No one stops to bury the guy. No one stops to show to have mourning. We see none of that. It shows how much, you know, Bimlech was all about himself and really no one else cared about him. But here is Abimelech, the conquering, storming hero, and he comes into this city and he's ready to burn another tower to ground, another tower of refugees, when, when this woman has the sense to employ a millstone as a weapon and drops it. As I said, the injury was fatal, but before he dies, he asks his armor bearer to finish it off because he didn't want to be disgraced. What does that show us? It shows us what complete disregard he had for God. Now consider here that here is a man that it knows that his life is now measured not in days, not in months, not even in hours, possibly not even in minutes. And instead of remorse for his murderous past, instead of calling out to God for mercy... On his own account, this man is worried about what his obituary is going to say. He was concerned about his reputation. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not wrong uh, to be concerned about your reputation to some degree. But when you're on your deathbed here and your physical life is draining from your body, you know what? Maybe uh, that's not the greatest concern at that moment. And God provides us every day with opportunities to to build our legacy, to write our reputation in a way that pleases God. It's up to us how we do it. And it's a pretty remarkable story. Obviously, God was not pleased with Abimelech and what he did. But I want you to notice something before we get into some application. I want you to notice back in Judges chapter 9, 
in verse 22. It says, And Abimelech ruled over, three, over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brother. What is that passage telling us there? That passage is telling us is that even though Abimelech was selfish, and even though Abimelech had self-serving plans that were, were made by a very corrupt leader, God used them to accomplish his purpose of exacting revenge on the men of Shechem. And even though it was that way, God still used this. So what can we learn from Abimelech? Let's look at four truths I believe we can learn. Number one, number one is God can use even the wicked to accomplish his will. God can use the wicked to accomplish his will. And that's powerful. He can even use his enemies to accomplish what he wants. Not because of their lives or because of their choices, but in spite of them, but in spite of what they have done, because God is powerful. And the citizens of Shechem were being punished in their part in Abimelech's sin, and, and they did not realize that God was doing that through Abimelech. You know, they didn't understand the principle that Joseph had said to his brothers. Remember when Joseph was sold into slavery and, and they came, uh, the brothers came later, years later, and they, they were at the feet of Joseph and, and they thought Joseph was going to kill them. And what did Joseph say? Joseph said this, you intended it for evil, but what? God intended it for good. And sometimes we have to remember that God allows things to happen that, that are are on the surface evil, but God allows them for good. Uh, I heard a story of a guy named Voltaire, and uh, he was a philosopher, and he was an unbeliever, um, and he died in 1778. Voltaire was not one that trusted in God. He was one that uh, did not say great things with, about God. In fact, um, he said that uh, at one point during his life, he said, within a hundred years of my death, Christianity will be completely swept away from existence. He said, the Bible will no longer exist and Christians will no longer exist within a hundred years of my death. Well, what happened? Voltaire died and the circulation of the Bible continued to increase in almost every part of the world. Now here's where the uh, irony comes in. Uh, Fifty years after his prediction of his demise, um, there was the, the Geneva uh, Bible um, Society was looking for a place to, to continue to publish their Bibles. And, and they, went to, they were in Geneva and they went to a home and, and it already had a printing press built in in the home and they thought, this is a perfect house for us. And so they bought this house and guess whose house that was? Voltaire's. And God used that for good. And, and even though he was a, a man who cared nothing about God, even though he was a man who said Christianity wouldn't exist, God used what he had created for his own good. 
I mean, isn't that amazing? We see the first thing is God can use even the wicked to accomplish his will. Second thing I want you to notice is that you reap what you sow. Um, we mentioned this, this idea a couple weeks ago when we talk about in Galatians where it says that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. I think here's a perfect example of this and actually to, to, the, to the detail. Do you remember um, what it said about, about his killing of the 70 brothers or 69 brothers? It was very specific in Scripture what it said. And if you look at that passage, um, let's, let's look there. It says it in chapter 9 and verse... Let's see, uh, verse 5. Uh, it says, And he went up to his father's house at Oprah, Ophrah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubal, 70 men, notice what it says, on one stone. Okay? Flip ahead. What was the cause of his demise? A stone. Now, I don't think it always happens that way. I don't think it always is perfect that way, but the idea that you get from that passage is very clear, is that we reap what we sow. When we live a certain way, that's going to be, uh, it, we're going to face consequences of those things. And we're going to face the, the circumstances that come from that. If you're a person who, you know, you struggle with certain things in your life, you know eventually it's going to catch up to you, and eventually God is going to judge you because of those sins. And, and here Abimelech thought he was powerful, he thought he was great, he thought he was special, he thought he had all figured it out, he thought he had manipulated people in such a way that he was in control, and yet God used that circumstance against him, and, and he did reap what he sowed. And third... We need to control our ego. I know that many uh, of you, as well as myself, we struggle daily with the sin of pride. And pride comes out in many different ways. Um, <laughs> you know, the story is told about the guy who said to, to his pastor, he said, I, I don't have pride, and I'm very proud of that fact. You know, uh, we, we all have, struggle with pride. And sometimes our pride is obvious, you know, you're, it's blatant, uh, you know. Sometimes our pride is in false humility. Um, sometimes our pride is in, uh, we, we beat ourselves up, you know. Uh, we talk about someone who's just like, everything is horrible in their life, and everything is bad, and, and they can't do anything good, and, and I'm a miserable person, and they constantly are putting themselves down. You know what they have? Pride. Because they're trying to convince themselves you know, that, uh, that they're bad. And because they're doing that, they're hoping in the process that someone will say, no, 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 you're really a good person. No, no, you, you know, you've done great things for God. Many of us struggle with pride. And though we may rationalize our struggle by saying that we're nowhere near the pride of Abimelech, that he stood up and he did all this, but the Bible does warn us that if we sow pride... We're going to reap destruction. And Abimelech couldn't control his ego. And the question I have for you is, are you able to control your ego? Are you a person who struggles with that? And, and challenge yourself on that. Um, in, 19, excuse me, in 1885, there was a young man who died. And after his funeral, his grieving parents decided that they wanted to establish a memorial for him. So with that in mind, they went to Harvard University 
And they met with the president at that time, Charles Eliot. Eliot received the unassuming couple into his office and asked what he could do for them. After expressing their desire to fund a memorial, he, he looked at them and tried to be compassionate, but you know, he thought, we're Harvard University, what can you offer us? And he says to them, well, perhaps maybe you can give a little bit to our scholarship fund. And they said, well, to be honest, sir, we were thinking something more substantial. Maybe we would build a building in our son's honor. In a patronizing tone, Elliot looked at him and said, I, I don't think that's possible. After all, this is Harvard University. And we're far bigger than that, and I, I don't think that you understand what you're dealing with. The couple departed. The next year, Elliot received word that this plain, unassuming couple had gone elsewhere and had established a $26 million memorial, and they named it the Leland Stanford Junior College, better known today as Stanford University. And this man, even though you know, he didn't allow his ego to stay in check, and he thought, you know, we're Harvard University, and we'd, we're not going to accept your money. I think $26 million would have gone a long way back in that time. You ever check your ego? You ever check your pride? And then finally, I want you to look at God is our king. Abimelech's story is a reminder to us that there's no need to look for our king. You know, Abimelech wanted to be king, and, and really the people appointed him to be king. We see later on when Saul comes along, and, God, and the people say, God, we want a king, and God says, it's, I'm your king. But they didn't listen to that, and so in, in, they put in place someone who they sh- thought should be king, but um, the place to begin the, is, is to have our relationship with our king right through humble submission. That's why Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All the fame and wealth and pleasure and accomplishments cannot forgive your sin. All the fame and wealth and accomplishments cannot cause you satisfaction in life, but Jesus Christ can, and Jesus Christ can forgive your sin. And he requires, all he requires is that we humbly admit our need in a king, humbly admit our need for him, and daily submit ourselves to his will. You know, we're not asking for a king today. You know, we're not always satisfied with our president, so we're not asking for a king. But the problem is, is I think many times in our lives, uh, we make ourselves king. And we have a course of life that God wants us to go on, and we go, no, I'm not so sure about that, God. And we make ourselves king. And, we, and whether you're a young kid or, or an older person, we, we do that every day. Think about this for a second. When you make your decisions uh, throughout your day, how many times have you stopped and asked God if this was the right decision? How many times have you stopped and said, God, is this what you want me to do? How many times have you stopped and said, God, is this your will? No, we just make decisions and just do it. This is the right thing, I'm going to do it, because I'm in control. 
And just like Abimelech, he placed himself in this position that he was not supposed to be in. That's what we're doing the same. And we're putting ourselves in a position where we're not supposed to be in. And what God asks us to do is to humble ourselves as we come into the presence of God. Uh, many of you have heard of the, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. It's, uh, um, I have not been to, to Israel. Maybe Have any of you been to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem? Do we have any in here? Okay. We have a few. If you go to the church in the Nativity in Bethlehem, uh, that is the, supposedly the place where um, Christ uh, was born. The church was built upon that place. But if you take a closer look that, at that church, you will notice that the entrance is very small. Now, Drew Lister, you raised your hand. You're a tall guy. Did you go inside? Yes. Did you have to duck considerably? Yes. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very short doorway, and you have to duck to get inside of it. Now, tradition says it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always the, the way it was. In, in, the, in the Middle Ages, knights would come into the chapel seeking the blessing from the priest, and because they were busy, and because they were powerful, and because they thought they uh, knew best, that they would come in and they would take their, their horses right into the chapel, because previously it was a huge opening way, and they'd take their horses and, right into the chapel, and the priest said to them, you cannot come unless first you humble yourself. And so over time they would add to the doorway, add to the doorway. And they made it in such a way that in order to come into the presence of God, first of all, you had to get off your horse and bow down when they came into the presence of God. You know, maybe it's time for some of you to get uh, to a point of humility and bow down and say, Lord, I give you my life. Okay, in my ego, I've been trying to run it myself, but I give you my life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning, and I pray that you will use your scripture to teach and impact lives. Thank you again for all you have done. In Christ's name, amen.